Let's read Daniel chapter 1. That's right, no verses, chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. And he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylon and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, he named Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to now show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king, who was assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please, test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with the young men who eat the royal food, and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine, and they were to eat and drink, and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds, of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king then talked with them and found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. Twenty-one verses. Come on, well done. I, uh, before I get started, I want to just give a brief um, thank you to, to last week and our wonderful pastor appreciation time. Um, Morgan, thank you for coordinating a lot of that. Thank you for the fat heads 
Um, those were fantastic. Corey's head was a lot smaller than the rest of ours. I'm not sure why. I think Corey has a normal size head. Um, but uh, it was it was wonderful. All the balloons and decoration. It was just like so big and elaborate and joyful. And there was notes that I read. And some of you guys' notes was awesome. And some of them I was like, this is interesting. So many thoughts that you have about me. I don't know. Um, but uh, I just am very grateful um, for that. And uh, I know that the other pastors on our team are also very grateful and thankful for your appreciation um, of us and our desire really to help guide this community into a life of uh, Christoformity or Christ-likeness. That's our aim. That's our desire. Um, man, just echo Jay's words. John, thank you, brother. That was beautiful, and I think that came from a deep place. And I think we all sensed that. And, uh, I'm very grateful, but I also recognize that if it wasn't for a piano and a bass, that wouldn't have been able to happen. So thank you, Shelby, on the bass, getting it done, holding it together, right? And Anderson moving from guitar to piano in the middle of the set. So I'm just saying, I was going to be pretty well done, impressed. I was, I was thoroughly impressed. So um, it's good to see you guys this morning. I hope you're well. I hope you're staying warm. It's getting chilly outside, okay? Uh, but it is uh, certainly a wonderful time of the year, I believe. And um, looking forward to this new teaching series in the book of Daniel. A very interesting Old Testament book. It falls in ancient prophetic literature, but it reads very interestingly. There's a major shift that happens in chapter 7 of the book into what's called apocalyptic literature. Um, we're not going to get into the apocalyptic literature. It's a lot to unpack. We're going to primarily sit in the historical narrative aspect of Daniel, which is really the first six chapters. And though it's called Daniel, Daniel isn't actually the main character as much in the story. He obviously plays a key role in the story, but you see a couple other characters, some of his friends, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, that play a very central role in this narrative, as well as King Nebuchadnezzar, who plays a very distinct role in this story. But the main character in the ancient book of Daniel is actually Yahweh. Yahweh is the central character in this entire narrative. Now, I don't know if you guys have seen some of the VeggieTales videos about the Book of Daniel. Uh, there are some famous VBS stories in the Book of Daniel. Some of you um, might have some wonderful memories of times growing up in Sunday school, going to VBS, and hearing about Daniel in the lion's den, right? Or um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Like, if you think about the stories you were taught in Sunday school, they're a little bit dark and deep and kind of scary. Um, the Old Testament is full of a lot of challenging themes and narratives and stories, and it's funny because it's like as children, we're immersed in the Old Testament, and as adults in the West, we just stick to the New Testament. And I'm kind of confused because the Old Testament has a lot to grapple with. There's some tough stories to sit in, if we're honest. Um, but Daniel is a fascinating story and book, and I'm looking forward to diving into it together. Uh, we ended last week with our teaching series on the stages of the journey, and looking at and explaining what it means for us as followers of Jesus to live a life modeled after him or patterned after his teaching and his ways. 
and to kind of keep things somewhat uh, in sync, we're moving into this uh, teaching series by recognizing the challenge that's in front of us in our modern moment. And that is, what does it look like for us to live that model life now? What does it look like in our current cultural moment to live in the pattern laid before us in the teaching and person work of Jesus of Nazareth? In the sifting sands of societal trends, values, norms, and narratives, what does it look like for us to be what are referred to as resilient disciples? Because here's the staggering reality for all of us, whether we know this or not. The amount of resilient, committed, grounded, rooted, planted, so to speak, disciples of Jesus in the Western world is and has been shrinking over the last couple of decades quite rapidly. Quite rapidly. Now, I don't want to be an alarmist by any means. I'm not some kind of doomsday person. The world's coming to an end. I recognize that, statistically speaking, the church in the modern era, in the Western world, is in rapid decline. The amount of resilient disciples, based on Barna's research, are now at around 10% of young Christians. So out of young believers, young Christians, only about 10% are considered resilient disciples. And we might consider a resilient disciple someone who's radical, but in the study and in the survey, it's really just what I would call like basic entry-level discipleship to Jesus. Believe that Jesus Christ lived and died and resurrected. Believe that the Bible has authority. It's authoritative. Believe in the importance of gathering corporately. A resilient disciple gathers with the people of God at church on average once a month. I mean, come on. This is basic entry-level stuff, and believes that the Holy Spirit through us is transforming and changing the world. This is radical obedience to Jesus in 2022. And I look at that, I'm just like, to me, that's just basic discipleship. That is nothing fancy or special. But this is where we find ourselves. There are many people now who um, have totally left the faith. In the Barna research, they're referred to as prodigals or ex-Christians. And we know a lot of these folks. They grew up in the church. They grew up going to some, you know, church out in suburbia, went to youth camp, they did all the things, checked all the boxes, prayed a prayer, had the moments, went to college, went through a process, and then they just ultimately walked away altogether for, for whatever reason. Um, and then there are just nominal or habitual Christians, uh, people who, they might attend gatherings, they might participate in the life of the church, but they're not a disciple of Jesus. They're, they're not participating in discipleship of Jesus. It's just habitual. Um, those two categories of young Christians make up a majority. It's like 60% of young Christians are either just ex-Christians, so to speak, or uh, you know, are now nominal at best. Only 10% are considered to be resilient. So we recognize that there is a shift in the West, but, as I said, I'm not alarmist, the church globally is exploding. It is absolutely exploding. There are more Christians and believers in the global South by far than the Western Hemisphere. By far. 
hundreds of thousands and tens of millions of believers in the global south. And did you know, I've said this before, that the greatest revival happening right now in the world is in Iran. In 1996, there were about 75,000 Christians in Iran. Now there are close to 1 million Christians in Iran. A persecuted nation. It's not comfortable to follow Jesus in Iran. And it's being led by women who are on the lower end of the social totem pole, so to speak. Other places in Latin America, the gospel is planting and expanding. And now, I, I learned this past week talking to our local missions partner that in Latin America, they're now sending missionaries to unreached people groups across the world. So believers that are coming to know Jesus in Latin America are being sent across the world to go share the gospel in unreached places. There is a revival happening, but we in the West are experiencing decline. So then what does it look like for us to live as people modeling our life after Jesus in this modern era? Or how do we become resilient disciples? And what does that look like? Because the ground on which we stand right now is shifting greatly. And has been shifting for quite some time. This is not new. Some say that the ground has been shifting since the Enlightenment, or what is referred to as the Age of Reason, which began in Europe roughly four centuries ago. 400 years ago marks the beginning of the Enlightenment, or the Age of Reason, where there was suspicion then around spirituality and the transcendent, and everything was about uh, natural law, natural sciences, rationality, and logic, all kind of underneath the umbrella of Rene Descartes' famous line, I think, therefore I am. And since that moment, there's been this massive shift over time. And that era, at that point, marked the uh, genesis of the end of another marked period of time in the Western world, known by historians and sociologists as Christendom. I'm giving you guys a basic high-level like church history real quick, if I can. That marked the end of an era and the beginning of another. Christendom began when a tiny persecuted Jesus movement, or Messianic Jewish movement, known simply as the Way, went from the fringe of society with just a few thousand to taking up roughly 53% of the entire population of the Roman Empire within 300 years. Massive movement in the first 300 years of the church. But with the Edict of Milan in the early 4th century under Emperor Constantine, the way turned into a civil religion known as Christianity. Emperor Constantine uh, made Christianity the civil religion of the day. Under the notion that he had an encounter with the Holy Spirit, I, we can debate all of that. I'm not so sure that he did. I think there was some, some power gain there by way of getting the majority now uh, in a place to be able to support his regime, so to speak. And that ushered in what historians refer to as a period known as Christendom. Now, Christendom didn't mean that everyone was a disciple of Jesus. 
by any means. That's not what that means. But what Christian, uh, Christendom meant was that Christianity as a religion touched and influenced every facet of society, making it the major and dominant religion of the Western world, putting it at the very center of culture. Now, the word Christian, we need to clarify, has and never will be, has not and never will be, an adjective. Christian is a noun. You either are a Christian or you're not. There is no such thing, grammatically or theologically, as a Christian nation. I just want us all to be aware of that. Why? Because Christian is a noun, it's not an adjective. To be Christian is to be a follower of Jesus. But, a majority of a majority of time throughout history, Christendom is the moment where Christianity uh, is at the center of public life, and the ideas within Christianity touch every facet of society, so to speak. But we in the U.S. have felt this shift over the last century, over the last 100 years. And we have felt its acceleration specifically in the last decade, I would say. In the last decade. Especially for us living in the South. Now, if you live in New York or in Seattle or San Francisco or other global cities, you would feel it much sooner. But for us, we felt it in the last decade or so, where Christianity is no longer at the center of society. It's not at the center of public life. But rather has moved to the fringe once again. All of which is summed up philosophically and sociologically into two social realities. Secularism, or secularity, and post-Christianity, or post-Christendom. Now, background on me. Before I went to seminary, in undergrad, I studied business and sociology. So, I, I love the Bible, and I love theology, I love entrepreneurship, I love business, I love economics, but I also am a bit nerdy when it comes to contemporary culture. I'm fascinated by how society functions and how society develops over time. And so this teaching series will have a kind of collision of both of these worlds together to help us uh, understand what it looks like to follow Jesus in our current time. And sociologists have used these two terms to help us have an awareness of where we are in the modern era currently. So to define terms a bit, here is the word secularism. Secularism. Now, secularism does not mean not spiritual. Okay? It does not mean empty of God. But rather where God becomes an option among many. And the public square is meant to be neutral, rational, unbiased, and scientific, where there is no appeal to a transcendent authority. Does that make sense? That the public square is meant to be neutral, rational, unbiased, and scientific, where there's no appeal to a transcendent authority. Uh, most of us think of secular as just simply without God. That's not necessarily the case. It's just where God becomes an option among many options. And the appeal to the transcendent is no longer. 
the, the philosopher who's done the most work in this conversation over the last century is a Canadian philosopher by the name of Charles Taylor. He wrote a very long book that none of you will ever read, it's a thousand pages, called A Secular Age. None of you will ever read this book, I promise. It is way too dense. I know you won't read it because I haven't read the whole book, okay? Um, there is a short little book that synthesizes Taylor's work by the philosopher James K.A. Smith called How to Not Be Secular that I would encourage you guys to read. It's 150 pages. It is dense, but it's not a thousand pages, okay? So here's what he says about what's happening in our world. The shift to secularity in this sense consists, among other things, of a move from a society where belief in God is unchallenged and indeed unproblematic to one in which it is understood to be one option among others and frequently not the easiest to embrace. One option being, in our time, is referred to as exclusive humanism. Exclusive humanism, which, as you will see, sounds a lot like the culture and the very origin of Babylon. Basically, the notion is that in exclusive humanism is that we as humans have the capacity and the capability to, on our own, usher ourselves as a society into utopia. Does that make sense? That we, on our own, can usher our way into a utopian world. But this is also referred to by sociologists as the myth of secularism, or the myth of progress. Though all of us in this room, even if we're believers, inhabit secular age. Mm -hmm. All of the secular age. So that kind of provides a little bit of a definition about secular. It's not those people over there. It's our experience in society. Okay? Here's post-Christianity. What is post-Christianity? Here's what Mark Sayers has to say in terms of defining post-Christianity. Post-Christian culture attempts to retain the solace of faith while gutting it of the costs, commitments, and restraints that the gospel places upon the individual will. Post-Christianity intuitively yearns for the justice and shalom of the kingdom whilst defending the reign of the individual will. Post-Christianity is Christianity emptied of its content. It attempts to move beyond Christianity while simultaneously feasting upon its fruit. To shorten, post-Christianity or post-Christendom isn't moving beyond Christianity, but rather it is seeking the kingdom of God without the king. It is progress without presence. That is what post-Christianity means. And I think we all see this all around. Let me just give an example. I just mentioned it. A perfect example is justice. Justice is inherently a Judeo-Christian reality. Anytime you ever hear anyone use the word justice, it is rooted in the Judeo-Christian narrative. I was uh, out yesterday. This is how we've been impacted by secularism. I was out yesterday, and I was visiting uh, my in-laws up in Rockingham County. Come on, somebody. <laughs> and I was in Eden, the place of delight. Eden, North Carolina is not the same as Eden in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Um, 
but in downtown Eden, there's this um, like new age store, and it was called something like um, Nirvana is Everywhere, something like that. And in the display, there's all of these statements about social issues and about justice, but there's also this impulse pushing the idea of Nirvana, which is rooted in Eastern religions, right? Uh, in, in, in Buddhism and in Hinduism. And what that person doesn't even realize is that the notion of justice doesn't actually fit in an Eastern spirituality. Why? Because Eastern spirituality, in terms of harm that you experience, is rooted in what's called karma. Meaning that the injustice you experience is actually because of yourself, because of something you did to someone in the past. So there is this push-pull of wanting both worlds, but they're incompatible. Does this make sense? The very notion of justice, shalom, peace, love, is Judeo-Christian reality. Whether we've got it wrong or right, it stems from Christianity, okay? And so post-Christianity is attempting to usher in the kingdom of God without the king on our own as humans. This gives way to the basic fact that we, who are resilient disciples, now inhabit and live in what David Kinnaman of Barna has termed digital Babylon. And due to this digital age, everyone, as I just you know, gave an example of, is impacted by this shift. No matter if you live in the urban core of San Francisco or in backwoods Alabama, you are impacted by this shift. This is simply the air in which we now breathe. We, in the modern era, want to try to usher in utopia through our own means. Whether you are on the left or you are on the right, we believe that we as humans can usher in the kingdom of heaven by our own political strategies and ideologies. And that is false to the narrative of the scriptures and it has never, ever worked. But this is the land in which we inhabit as a people. So, what does it look like to live faithfully and to inhabit this empire that is, and I would argue, always has been a pseudo-Babylon? You actually see in the next couple of weeks how the Statue of Liberty mirrors, guess what? Babylon. Okay? Where the values, norms, behaviors, expectations, and narratives are actually counter to the kingdom of God. How do we live faithfully in this moment? How does one live planted, rooted, anchored, and grounded in this time despite the ever-strengthening current of counter-ideas and ethics? Now, that's enough philosophy, it's enough nerding out. Uh, we're gonna jump to the book of Daniel, okay? Welcome to the church, good to see you. <laughs> the book of Daniel, quite possibly, I think provides the most robust, descriptive blueprint of how to live faithfully in conviction amidst a culture of compromise. How to live in allegiance to the kingdom of God while also participating in the life of Babylon. And the Bible at large, the narrative arc of the scriptures, is the story of two cities, primarily. 
the city of Babylon and the city of God, often in the Old Testament referred to as Zion. Babylon and Zion, or Jerusalem, or eventually the new creation. Babylon morphs in the Old Testament from being an actual city in the ancient Near East to functioning as an archetype and prototype for the order of what Jesus calls the world. So, eventually, we get to the New Testament, we see Babylon, Babylon's continuing to be brought up. In the book of Revelation, Babylon gets brought up often, metaphorically, as an archetype. Okay, again, Babylon, city of God. So, Jesus speaks of this as the quote-unquote world, okay, or the order or the makeup of the society in which we live in that is counter to the kingdom of God, what we might would call the secular. Now, all modern empires of global, political, cultural, and economic power, from Rome to Britain to Russia to China and to the United States, over time mimic the makeup and characteristics of ancient Babylon. Back in April, there was a very uh, influential article that came out by a social psychologist by the name of Jonathan Haidt. He's a Jewish atheist social psychologist who's written a ton of New York Times bestsellers. And he wrote this article in The Atlantic entitled, Why the Past Ten Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid. <laughs> on the cover of this article, I have it for you on the screen, is a depiction of the ancient Tower of Babel. Can I get the picture up on the screen of the article? I think this is super interesting. Why the past 10 years of American life have been uniquely stupid? It's not just a phase by Jonathan Pike. He's a professor at NYU, brilliant person. And on this cover, I was interested because there is this picture of the Tower of Babel, referenced in Genesis chapter 11. He says this in this article, the story of Babel is the best metaphor I have found for what happened to America in the 2010s and for the fractured country we now inhabit. Interesting, is not the allure and experiment of mankind seeking to live and flourish apart from God's presence as the Genesis 11 story unfolds always seems to produce two results. Social confusion, chaos, and upheaval masked in technological advancement. Technological One of the things I have felt burdened by the last week is to be able to, in this space, on just a random Sunday, to be able to say that as followers of Jesus, we believe in the inherent value, dignity, and worth of every human being. That justice is at the center of the gospel. And that we must, as a people, continue to stand and advocate for our black and brown brothers and sisters who experience injustice and systematic racism in our nation. That of which uh, our nation was entirely built off of. Our entire economy, our entire structure built on the backs of slaves. But do you know what preceded the transatlantic slave trade? It was the technological advancement of ships that were built to sail the seas in Europe. Technological advancement. 
under the auspice of the heart of Babylon will always produce injustice, social confusion, and social chaos. And we see that in Genesis chapter 11. This is the city, so to speak, in which we inhabit. Social confusion, chaos, and upheaval masked in technological advancement. The vision for the people of Babylon was to build a city apart from God. That was the very vision. The very underpinning of what it means to be secular, quote unquote, is found in Genesis chapter 11, where they say, let us make a name for ourselves. This is the origin story of Babylon. Now, Babylon, to give you some geography, was 59 miles southwest of modern-day Baghdad, Iraq. This is where Babylon was in the ancient world. 1,600 miles from Jerusalem. This gives you a picture of the map in the ancient world. 1,600 miles. Babylon, as I mentioned, we first see in Genesis chapter 11. That's the origin story of the Tower of Babel and the people of Babylon and the uh, archetype being developed from this very um, city that we come to now. And the Tower of Babel was some um, ancient historians and um, archaeologists believe to have been 8,100 feet tall. 8,100 feet tall. That's a mile and a half tall. Three times the size of the Burj Khalifa in Dubai. The Burj Khalifa is the tallest skyscraper in the world, it's in Dubai, and the ancient Tower of Babel was three times its size. Here's a comparison. The Burj Khalifa on the right, the ancient Tower of Babel on the left. Now, in Babylon, there was a ziggurat temple at the very center of which it was referred to in the ancient Akkadian language as the House of Foundations of Heaven and Earth. Now, you could actually go now to Berlin, Germany, to the Pergamon Museum, and see the ancient Babylonian Ishtar Gate as a reconstruction. This is deeply interesting because in the early 1900s, archaeologists found a lot of artifacts from ancient Babylon. And here's a picture of the Ishtar Gate at the Pergamon Museum in Berlin. It's the reconstruction of what would have been in Babylon thousands of years ago. And you can see the ornate beauty and architecture um, that just the reeks of influence and wealth. Now, hundreds of years later, after Genesis 11, Daniel and his friends find themselves living in this ancient metropolitan city, empire, and zenith of civilization. Back to verse, chapter, verse 1 in chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. That's key context, contextual um, component there. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim of Judah into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Now this book that we're reading, Daniel, takes place primarily in the 6th century B.C. So 580, 600 years prior to Jesus. And it takes place during the 70-year period of exile for the Israelites. And the idea of exile simply means not at home. Not at home. To be exiled is to not be at home. 
And to provide more context, especially around this language of the Lord delivered, if you read that, like, oh man, what is going on? We have to have an awareness that from the beginning uh, of Israel's story, God chose them to be a covenant people to bring blessing to the nations. And he made this covenant with Abraham, but over time, Israel struggled to maintain that covenant, giving in to two temptations that we see ravage our society even now, injustice and idolatry. Injustice and idolatry. Whether red or blue, injustice and idolatry. Eventually, the house of Israel, so to speak, divided, and the Hebrew people were split between a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Twelve tribes split, ten in the north, two in the south. Israel in the north and Judah, the tribe of Judah, and Benjamin in the south. Now, the northern kingdom was first captured by the Assyrians around 700 B.C., and you could go read 2 Kings 17 to see that story unfold. But then the southern kingdom, which is the one in which Daniel and his friends are from, the tribe of Judah specifically, officially was conquered by the Babylonians in 586 B.C., and you can read that story in 2 Kings 24 and 25, under the reign of King Jehoiakim. So they were exiled for 70 years. Now, keep in mind, God had been warning the people of Israel about exile. And if they were going to turn it around and keep their promise, they would be sent into exile. So guess what God does? He keeps his promise. He sends them into exile. Okay? He sends them into the hands of King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Daniel and his friends arrived in 605 B.C. as the first round of captives because of their elite status and connection to the royal line of David. They came from the nobility. They came from the line of David. There was at least two rounds of um, the Babylonians taking the Israelites captive, and they were in the very first round. Uh, Babylonia was an ancient Akkadian-speaking empire uh, that was led by this king named Nebuchadnezzar, which I would encourage you, if you ever have a son, to never name him Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, I don't know that he uh, had much popularity uh, at the school cafeteria in middle school. Uh, but he finds himself becoming king of this ancient empire, who is not only the king of Babylon, but... By taking these artifacts, these sacred objects from the temple in Jerusalem, he would now have been thought of, in his mind at least, and his people as the king of the universe, as the king of the world. This was to say, not only did we defeat you, we defeated you and your God. We have your objects now in our time. This is the background of King Nebuchadnezzar. But what this book will reveal to us over time is not how to make the culture or the empire Christian. That's not our line. But how a Christian, how a believer, how a resilient disciple can live in a hostile and secular culture. There is, I believe, no greater model to look at in all of the scriptures. Now, verse 3 and 4. Then the king, Nebuchadnezzar, ordered Ashpenaz, another very interesting name, 
chief of his court officials to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the, as I mentioned, royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. These young men were young, they were bright, they were intelligent, they were also extremely good-looking and handsome. Now you then think back to what you look like at age 15 and ask yourself, would I have been chosen? <laughs> would I have been chosen as one of the few in the first round of captives because of my um, beautiful skin tone, my great hair, my intellect, my potential? Some of your wives but like, I know you weren't. <laughs> Shoot. They're handsome, okay? Keep in mind, these young men were not in their 30s. They were probably 15 years old. Roughly. A couple years older than Gavin. Gavin's, are you 12 now, Gavin? 12. 12 years old. Gavin's 12. A couple years from now, let's say Gavin's 15, and guess what? He gets chosen. You're one of the ones. Gavin, can you come up here for a second? <laughs> Gavin's going to be our model. Right? <laughs> Young, handsome, yeah. and intelligent. Nice young man chosen by King Nebuchadnezzar to enter into the king's service for the next seven decades. Are you pumped? Yes. <laughs> so, to give an idea, these guys weren't older. They were young. 13 to 17 years old, and they're chosen because of these qualifications. And they probably were influencers in their tribe of Judah. They probably had influence. And so when Daniel and his friends enter into Babylon as 15 or 16-year-olds, maybe even younger, they're entering as the next generation. I have a picture for you to maybe get a good glimpse of a young boy, age 15, entering into the king's service. 15-year-old Palestinian boy. This is Daniel and his friends entering into the king's service. And they have an interesting approach, I believe, in the way in which they are uh, maneuvering this social experiment. Because I think they realize, and we do this as well, we recognize this, that society is curated by and for the up-and-coming generation. So the way Babylon, as well as modern marketers, think is if we can get the 15-year-olds, we can get the culture. If we can get the next generation, we can get the society. This is the way we see society work amongst us even to this day. On to verse 4b into verse 5. He, Ashpenaz, was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. This was Babylonian social engineering at play. Let's, uh, let's immerse these four young men into a rigorous cultural training program using words, media, and food. 
This is our strategy. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to enculturate and assimilate these four while in isolation. He pulls them into the palace in isolation to enculturate them, forming them so that they could then, I believe, use their natural influence on the rest of Judah to follow suit. Is this not how we are formed? Through language, through words, through linguistics, redefining what words mean and always meant, as well as stories, or in our day and time, media, Netflix, TikTok, Instagram, stories, narratives, videos. This is how we are formed in our life and society. This is how we've always been formed. We've been formed by stories. And we've, as we have said before, stories are what influence what it is that we do. The philosopher James K. Smith, synthesizing uh, another famous philosopher, Alistair McIntyre, as well as Charles Taylor, says, we define who we are and what we ought to do on the basis of what story we see ourselves in. And Nebuchadnezzar is immersing them into the story of Babylon. He's having them read the literature and learn the very language. A primary piece of literature that they would have been immersed in would have been referred to as the Enuma Elish, which was the Babylonian creation myth that centers God made in the image of mankind. But the creation story they would have lived in would have been humankind made in the image of God. Do we see the difference? If we as individuals are going to flourish in Babylon and in this moment, so to speak, we have to name the very narratives and stories that we are being given and provide to our society a more compelling counter-narrative. You need to name the stories that influence you. You need to name the narratives of our moment and our day. And then we have to provide a more compelling counter-narrative. Unfortunately, the narrative that we have portrayed in the West over the last hundred or more years has just not been that compelling. It's not that interesting. It's not that compelling. And that was foreign to the first century of the church. This movement was compelling. So we have to name the stories. We have to know that we are impacted by narratives. Think about this. The 24-hour news cycle is nothing but narrative stories. Society has changed by stories, not mere facts. Now, are there true and false stories? Yes. But we are shaped by stories, art, media, film. This is how we are formed and shaped as individuals. And we have to think critically about the stories that we are intaking. Now, what about all the food? What's the deal with all the food? The primary way to be immersed and submerged into a culture is to eat the food in that place. Is it not? How many of y'all like to eat food? Can I get a witness? <laughs> when you go visit a place, the first question that you ask, if you want to experience the culture of that place, is where should we go eat? Where should we go eat? So I have a, I have a, a little bit of an interaction for you to, to engage with your, your neighbor. If a friend from out of town, out of the city, comes and visits Greensboro, where are you taking them to eat? I want to know. Talk to your friends. Talk to them. Where are you taking your friends from out of town to experience the culture of our city? 
tempted in our society to assimilate and give in to the tyranny of majority opinion. The slow drift into the way of the world. One little compromise at a time. Using the mantra, everyone's doing it. The current guys in our moment is strong. It's strong. We're inundated with ideas and ideologies and narratives that are counter to the way of Jesus. Philosopher Pascal said, why do we follow the majority? Is it because they are more right? No, they are stronger. Our greatest temptation in the post-Christian world isn't to colonize the culture. That's what happened in the pre-Christian context, the church come in and do mission work or colonize cultures, turn them into European settlements, essentially. That is no longer our temptation any longer. Our temptation in post-Christian society is to be colonized by the ideology of what is referred to by some as Western supremacy. Western supremacy. Not only is there enculturation happening through language and literature and food, but Nebuchadnezzar also changes their names from Hebrew names to Babylonian names. And names were your identity in the ancient world. It symbolized who or what you worshipped. Daniel's name was changed to Belteshazzar. Hananiah's name was changed to Shadrach. Mishael was changed to Meshach. And Azariah was changed to Abednego. 
Daniel's name meant God is my judge or king. Hananiah meant the Lord shows favor. Mishael meant God is unique or who is like God. Azariah meant God helps or God the teacher. And he changes their name as a way of enculturating them. Babylon sought to reinvent these young men who came from a place where everything was about Yahweh to now to a place where it was about a polytheistic vision of God. And they sought to redefine what was already given to them. Babylon sought to reinvent these young men and redefine what was already given. Whoever wrote these names in the book of Daniel, whoever the author is, constantly, if you notice, if you dive into it, is misspelling them throughout the entire book. And most scholars, uh, they thought it was a trans, like, transcript, transcription issue, but it wasn't. They think it's actually intentional. That whoever wrote this was essentially uh, making an intentional act and, and saying that is not who they actually are. That's not who they are. But then comes the hinge moment not in the first chapter, but probably the entire book. Their names are changed. They're enculturated into society. But I believe this is why we are entering into this book and why we're calling this seed planted. Verse 8. But Daniel resolved. Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. This is an act of what John Tyson calls a beautiful resistance. Daniel resolved. He purposed in his heart. To resolve is the opposite of dissolved. He resisted the temptation to melt into and to disappear and assimilate into the surrounding culture. As a 15-year-old, Gavin stood up to Nebuchadnezzar and said, I'm not going to eat your food. He resolved not to defile himself. We as a people must purpose and resolve in our heart prior to when temptation comes. Before temptation comes, you must choose resolve. So when it comes, you already know what your response is going to be. When the temptation to compromise comes or to compromise heads your way, you already know in your mind that you are going to choose to resolve. We have to make this a key aspect of our discipleship to Jesus. We must determine as people to resolve before the opportunity to compromise even arises. Now, Nebuchadnezzar did steal some sacred objects from their temple and thought that he had, you know, had a big victory in that. I think that's interesting because Daniel specifically here, chose not to be defiled. What does that mean? That means that he was pure. That means that he was sacred. So what's interesting in this first first chapter is that though Nebuchadnezzar steals these objects out of the temple as a statement of victory, what he didn't realize is that the purest sacred objects of all of Israel was actually these four young men. And it was as though they might be moved, but they wouldn't be shaken. They might be moved, but they would not be shaken. They would be defiled, polluted, or tainted. And their faithfulness to Yahweh in the face of compromise actually produced favor in Babylon. Eventually, God gives them knowledge and understanding. 
and they enter into the king's service because they can't find anyone equal to these bright young men. But it must be said that favor and blessing, as we come to a close, often comes after the choice and decision to resolve, not before it. Favor and blessing does not always come first and then the sacrifice. It is the resolve and it is the choice not to give in at the beginning before blessing comes and favor comes. What you are witnessing in this story is the development of these four boys becoming what the historian Arnold Toynbee and Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs calls a creative minority. Traditionally, as believers living in the modern secular world, we are presented with two options for engagement. Separatism or syncretism. Separatism is to separate yourself as best you can from society. Everything you do is Christian. You go to your Christian plumber, you, you hang out with your Christian friends, you go to Christian school, you go eat at a Christian restaurant, like you listen to Christian music, everything is Christian. You, you move out somewhere else where it's like 95% Christian. Like you are separating yourself. The perfect example of this would be like the Amish in the U.S. So that's extreme, but often many of us live this way. The other temptation for many of us is syncretism. And syncretism essentially is not so much uh, God or, but rather God and. Jesus and. To, to, to enmesh ourselves with culture and Jesus. A little bit of culture, a little bit of Jesus enmeshed together, synchronized. But we are called to be a creative minority. And the call of Daniel, I believe, is to be a creative minority. Faithful living to Jesus while participating redemptively in society. Maintaining a fruit-bearing rootedness and a weed-infested garden in the world, so to speak, but not of it. Now, it does come with immense pressure. But if you and I are strong as followers of Jesus, that pressure will actually produce a diamond. Pressure produces diamonds. And we will explore next week a more clear definition of what it means to be a creative minority. But first, as we just enter into this teaching series today, you must choose to resolve ahead of time. Determine in your heart not to compromise. And secondly, you must live out of your given and rooted identity not one that is given to you by someone of the culture that you yourself create. You must maintain your rooted identity as well as choosing to resolve as people living in Babylon. Let's pray together. Spirit, I'm grateful this morning for the chance to come together to worship in song, to sit under the teaching of the scriptures, to fellowship, and to come to the table. But I recognize that for many of us, we're just trying to figure out how to follow Jesus faithfully in our time, where it is becoming increasingly complex and challenged and certainly not easy. And as we come to the table this morning, Lord, we be reminded that sacrifice comes before the blessing. 
as we come to the table, may it be a statement of our own resolve to sit under the crucified as well as resurrected Lord Jesus. Help us to have an awareness of the narratives and the stories of our day and time. Help us to live in the story of God. To be faithful to the teachings of Jesus, the person and work of Jesus. Fill us up right now with the Spirit. Well, you sit for a moment and feel free as you would like to come to the table in response in repentance. We have our pastors up here, just off to the side. And as you feel led this morning, as you respond in obedience to today's teaching and today's talk, and would you allow the table to be a means of grace for you, that it might change you and shape you and mold you. We'd be a, a people of sacrifice in a world that seeks our own gain. Would you come to the table of our Lord this morning in remembrance of him, his presence among us, recognizing the kingdom that he unleashed by way of a broken body and poured out love. Would you come now to the table of our Lord Jesus Christ?